This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. He helps us pan for the gold inside ourselves. You need to have grit. I mean, a lot of this is grit. I feel like I've been made a better lawyer. They're talking about something that's real to them. You have to be really careful not to be Goliath. They saved a bunch of lives and changed society forever. But let's just begin the conversation. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we're going to do something a little different. Uh, We've been getting a lot of questions in, both on our Facebook page and on our email, uh, where people wanted to know things about practice. And this week, rather than having a a guest from outside my firm, we just, uh, my partner Mallory Peacock and I, we're going to try to answer some of your questions and you know, talk about how we do things and to see if that might be useful for you. Hey, Mallory, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Michael? It's pretty good. It's really weird to be talking to you on a microphone. <laughs> it is. Uh, um, so I read through some of the questions that we got um, through Facebook and through our email, and um, I think some people had some really great questions that I think that we can answer today. Um, so the first one is, uh, you know, everyone always is saying that we have to try more cases to get better, but sometimes you just can't get into trial um, because your client wants to settle or because whatever happens. Um, how do you practice uh, for trial, and how do you practice for that that big moment? Yeah, well, it's just like being an actor. You have to rehearse. Uh, you know, you wouldn't put on a huge uh, stage production on Broadway and then just go wing it when you got up there. Uh, so it obviously depends on the size of the case. You know, when we've had, you and I have worked up some significant cases, then in the weeks leading up, we've gotten people, uh, sometimes just people from the office, but you know, often on a bigger case, we bring in like a focus group type people, but we just practice the opening, we practice for dire. Uh, and so that's one way to do it. Uh, but then, you know, on the smaller cases, you don't, you know, always have that luxury. When I started trying cases, I mean, I've probably tried you know, in the first 10 years of my practice, 70, 80 soft tissue chiropractor only less than a thousand dollars property damage car wreck cases. And, uh, you know, on those cases, I could not hired one focus group. I've eaten up the case. Uh, and so on that, you just, you know, my poor wife had to watch me, other people in the office, but you still do need to practice. Um, do you write out your opening word for word and then practice that, or how, how do you how do you prepare? I don't. I know people that do, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, I write out key phrases. I make an outline. Every time I say it, I say it differently because it's not just the words; it's the human connection. So, if I'm talking to somebody, I, I want to make sure in my opening, uh, in any time I'm talking, but especially my opening, that I have eye contact with the juror for everything I'm saying and it's going to be a different juror for each phrase and I want to make sure I'm getting through to that person so I might reword something I might I might say something and I see a look and I know they didn't get it and so then I'll say it a different way uh, just to make sure they got it and then move on to the next person and give the next chunk of information so I'm not one that believes in writing out a script word per word but I know other people that that do very well that do that I would think there's some kind of risk with writing out a script word for word that that you lose that human connection that you're so focused on staying on script that you might forget to make eye contact and talk to a juror but um, I know for my openings I write out a script but then I don't bring the script with me yeah that that's also good now I, I do tend to bring an outline with me uh, just 
in case because you get in the moment and then you kind of forget where you were. Uh, although practice helps with that too. But even when you practice and stuff, it's just nice. I like having that crutch of an outline there. How do you practice for something like Vore Dyer where you don't know what the jurors, the jury panel is going to say? You have no idea where they're going to go with it. I mean, how do you practice for that? Well, I, I think a lot of it you go to workshops. Uh, you uh, Trial Lawyers College does really good ones. Uh, the three core method that Mike Leeserman, Josh Carton, and Jay Rinson Welk are doing uh, does some really good Vore Dyer exercises where you actually go and practice with real people practice what to do of you know when someone gives you that horrible like oh, I think you're just here because you're a greedy trial lawyer you want money and you've got to let that kind of go through you and be nice back and well that's partially true but that's not the whole reason I'm here uh, I mean Jupiter still on one of our podcasts we have a good example it's like yes I do like to make money I've got a family and I do enjoy the success but that's not the only reason we're here we're here because this, this young man is really hurt uh, you know, just getting, you know, acknowledging the truth. But I think just that's the only way to do it. And, you know, we have before brought people in to practice talking to folks uh, on the topics we're talking about. So kind of like instead of doing a regular focus group, bringing in 10, 12 people and just practicing it. On smaller cases, I've sometimes, uh, you know, being from Texas, I have a lot of conservative friends. And so uh, I'll buy the beer and, you know, beer and pizza or beer and barbecue and, get 12 people and make them sit there and humor me for 45 minutes and talk about the case and I think that's been really helpful because then you're talking to a friend and it helps you get in the thing of when you're talking to juror like you're talking to a friend in a living room instead of being a lawyer and preaching and trying to put words in their mouth uh, but I think you know just finding some way to practice but yeah you're not going to word hour is different because you can practice the skills you can practice how to talk to people about tough things how to handle tough responses but it's just you know just, it's like going to combat. You, you have a plan, and then you go in there, and you just got to improvise. How do you make up a plan for Vordire? What I typically do is I look at what am I most afraid of in the case. I spend some real time thinking of all the things that, that, that worry me that could, you know, things that aren't part of the evidence that the jury could bring in with them, things in the evidence they could take the wrong way, and I put them in order of what scares me the most, and, and then go down, and I tend to, especially if I have a short board hour, start with the thing I'm scared most of, and I usually don't get through all of them. Uh, sometimes I have a few questions trying to make, make a point or get them to think about certain things, uh, and that uh, is also helpful to do, but if I have limited time, I'm more worried about the things I'm scared of than trying to inoculate them to be on my side. Um, we had a trial last year where you did a voir dire that actually really changed our whole trial strategy right after the voir dire happened. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was a, what they call an inclusive voir dire. And, uh, you know, it's I learned how to do it at the Trial Lawyers College back in 1998. And I didn't really get the courage to actually try it until I worked to uh, Josh Leeserman, Josh Carton, and uh, Joshua Carton. He likes to be Joshua, not Josh. <laughs> and Jay Rinson Welk's uh, workshop and practice some more and talk to Michael and Joe Freed, another great lawyer who's been on the show, about how they did it. And I finally had the guts to, to do it. And what I did is I didn't try to get anyone off the jury. Uh, I was just trying to make a human connection with people, talking to people. Um, and I think one of the reasons it worked is I'd done all the work to get past my own BS so that I can handle just talking to people. Uh, but the other is we had a judge that actually gave us enough time to do it. In a lot of our cases, we have 30 minutes. And, you know, we have a group of 48 people. We have less than a minute each. 
it's a little harder to do the inclusive method. And this one, we had a couple hours, and you know, I thought we really had some beautiful moments bonding with the, the jurors, and we had some incredibly conservative people uh, give an incredibly uh, substantial reward that helped our client. Tell me a little bit more about your goal not being to get people off or cause. I thought that was sort of the whole point of selecting a jury. Well, I always did, too. Uh, <laughs> But no, my thought was I really go in there, and I don't even take notes anymore. I mean, luckily we have a great team. Uh, you know, you're there. Uh, we have like, usually about three or four people throughout the courtroom. So when I'm going there with the mindset I'm going there is I respect you. I want to hear what you have to say. And we're going to have a conversation like we're friends. And I'm going to talk to you about all the things I'm afraid of in this case. Um, and I'm going to trust you that you are a smart and compassionate enough person that you can look at the issue like I do and you're going to be able to understand the, the truth, and you're going to be able to get past the, all the BS, all the prejudice, all the biases. Uh, now, that's not to say that we still didn't strike people for causing that case, because we did, uh, because some people, when we had an honest conversation, just honestly said, well, I can't do that, and I thanked them for that. But I wasn't my goal. Uh, I found that you know I can do uh, what they call an exclusionary voir dire, but I think the problem is people figure out what you're doing, and what you really do is you identify and strike a lot of people who just don't feel like being on jury duty. Like, okay, I have a bias or prejudice. I couldn't do that. I couldn't give money for that. Or I couldn't follow that standard. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the worst ones probably aren't raising their hand. Uh, and so I think you get a jury with just quiet people and the people that are what they call a stealth juror, the one that actually wants to go in there and hurt you and, and is motivated to be on that jury. So they're not going to, they're going to always say, well, I can always be fair. I have to hear the evidence first. Those kind of keywords. To me, that things I, I want to stand the jury so I can screw you over. <laughs> um, so one of the issues in that trial um, that we decided we had to get out in Bordier was that our client was from Mexico. So she was riding a bus from Mexico to Texas when the incident happened. So it was going to come out. Um, and we were worried that people would think that I don't have to give her as much money because money goes a lot further in Mexico than it does in the United States. And um, how, did, how did you end up deciding to deal with that in Board Iyer? I said that I have a real worry in this case because my client lives in Mexico. Um, and, uh, you know, she went back to Mexico after she got hurt four years ago. And, you know, other than for her deposition in this trial, hasn't been back. And, you know, some people think money goes a lot further in Mexico and would maybe give less money for pain and suffering than someone who lived here in the United States, other people might feel differently. What do you think about that? And uh, it was an interesting discussion. I thought it was really interesting. I think it's the first time that I saw, I've always heard that demographics, you can't use demographics to strike jurors, you can't just rely on that. And I know that in my mind, but to actually see it in action um, was, was pretty cool. Um, so I'll let you describe kind of what the conversation ended up being amongst the jury panel when you asked that question. Yeah, so our Hispanic jurors, a number of whom said that money does go a lot further in Mexico and they would have to think about exchange rates and buying power uh, and that they would give less money. Uh, and it's interesting how it all went because then we had a juror that we, based on demographics, would never have let on the jury. I mean, he was a white, 27-year-old active-duty Marine. Uh, you know, seemed like a guy that would be very conservative. And, you know, so I'm talking to people about this, and I'm actually getting to be, okay, I'm trying this exclusive thing, inclusive thing, and I'm not liking what I'm hearing. I'm getting a little nervous, honestly, because they're, they're 
people, a number of people are saying, yeah, we can't give as much money. We'd have to start looking at that. And I'm getting a little scared. But I remember Joe Free telling me, just trust the group. The group will save you. And lo and behold, you see this young man getting agitated. His hand shoots up. And you can tell he's just ready to talk. And he'd been a talker anyway. And I said, yes, sir. He goes, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're trying to tell me that someone from Dubai where it costs more money to live comes over here and he gets hurt, his pain is worth more than mine? No, sir. This is the United States of America. We are all equal here. I serve because we are all equal. And no one should get any more or any less because of where they come from. And man, that shut it down. It did. You know, it was really emotional, I think, for a lot of the jury panel and for us um, yeah. to see someone care so much about equality and justice for our client. And they hadn't heard any of the evidence or anything. I mean, it was very passionate, um, I thought. And it worked because it came from the juror. If I had said that, I would have been preaching. I would have been, it, there would have been a backlash, you know, but because it came from one of them. And then, you know, we used our peremptories on the ones that wouldn't. And the judge actually at one point, he was getting offended by it and shut it down and said, hey, there's not going to be a jury instruction on exchange rates. And, you know, you need to value pain for value pain. And, but uh, so he, he actually, I guess, was bothered by the conversation too. But, but it wasn't me arguing back. I didn't do any arguing. I was respectful. I was listening. Uh, I think I may have told someone, like, oh, that hurts. That's what I was worried about. But, I mean, it, it was honest. It wasn't an argue back, like, I don't respect your opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, but I let the other jurors save me. And then that guy, you know, the other side was picking on demographics, not on being human listening. And he was our foreman. And, you know, when I said, I need you to go fight for her and bring back a, you know, a substantial verdict and, he nodded with me when I said he didn't. I didn't get the two million dollars, but I said I need two million dollars, and he nodded, and he came back with a million and a quarter. So, you know, on a case with a hundred twenty-five thousand dollar offer, we were pretty happy with him fighting for us. Yeah, and so that kind of leads me to the other part of my question: is after that inclusive voir dire. By the way, I think that lasted two and a half, three hours, I and mean, it was long. Yeah. Um, but the judge let us go until you were done. I mean, I think he let us go longer than he planned to let us go because he he was interested it was an interesting conversation we were engaging people we weren't playing lawyer games we were actually listening to what people had to say um and so after that inclusive board dire and after the jury was actually selected um we had planned out me and you who was going to do witnesses who was going to do closing who was going to do opening but it totally changed our perspective of the case so why do you think that is well you know i think there's a there's a real struggle that i have when i try a case with you because one, you're good, and I want you to contribute. And the other is I want you to continue developing as a lawyer, and so I want you to have the opportunity to go in there. And if I do everything, uh, there is how do you develop? But the other thing is when you go and do an inclusive or dire and you form a bond with a jury, and then you sit down and someone else talks to the jury that has no bond at all, you're losing a real opportunity. So I think that, that really has to be weighed. And in that case... You know, I think it was closing is the one thing I remember us changing because we, we planned on splitting the closing. You were going to do the first half. I was going to do the second. Uh, I never would have called an audible because I, wouldn't, I did not want, would not want to hurt your feelings. So I never would have told you, Mallory, and although I was feeling it inside, like saying, oh, man, I really think I should do this closing all myself because I, I just felt a real bond with the jury during that trial. Uh, but I wasn't going to, to do that to you. But then you told me, like, I think you should do the closing because you've really yeah. bonded with the jury. And, uh, you know, that was speaks a lot for you, too, because you put the client ahead of your own, you know, ego and glory, and uh, and it worked. Yeah. 
it did end up working. You know, I remember us having dinner, talking about the closing and what we were going to do. And, and I, just the more I thought about it, just thinking, I mean, there's no way I can connect to this juror, jury after what you did in Vordire and after the way that the, the cross-examinations went of certain witnesses. And I just felt like it would be like you were abandoning the jury at that yeah. point, at the very end that you just sat down and abandoned them. And I didn't want them to feel like that. Yeah, it would be like, you know, you had, you know, you went on a date with somebody, you went on three dates, you get engaged, and then it's time to get married. And, oh, by the way, my friend, he's a really good guy. Talk to him. You guys go walk up, get married together. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, you, you form this relationship with somebody and then to, to abandon them at the end. Uh, and even though I would have come in for rebuttal, uh, I think it would have been bad. And it's not that you don't have this ability to do the exact same thing, because you do, but it's the fact that only one of us did it because only one of us was doing jury selection and I do think it would be really hard to switch and rebond it I think mm-hmm. you know trial really is about a one on you know, a one on 12 I guess but really one on one 12 times relationship and it's really hard to do that with multiple people now there's you know definitely advantages to trying cases with multiple people it's hard to do everything yourself and you don't have to have that with every single witness with every single argument but I do think there's a real advantage to at least doing a major part of each portion of the case if you're the person doing jury selection. And I've heard people say the same lawyer needs to do jury selection, opening and closing. We always try cases in pairs at the firm. Um, why, do you think, why do you think that's better than trying a case by yourself? I don't necessarily think it's better than trying a case by yourself. Uh, I think for me personally, under a certain size of case, it's easier to try a case by myself because I don't have to get on the same page with someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, because then I can do all the bonding. It's, it's, if you try a case with someone else, you know you can't have two captains of the ship and steer in different directions, and you have to really be able to work together, really at one point decide who's going to be in charge and who's going to craft the story. Uh, I do think if you can do that, and if it's a case that justifies having two lawyers, I mean, I, I personally, if I was going to go try a, you know, I don't know that I'm going to try another soft tissue auto case in my career because I've tried enough of them and I'm going to leave them to someone else that that deserves that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I was going to try another one, I don't think I would have another lawyer with me. Uh, and there's reasons for that. One is, honestly, I can get ready for it a lot quicker if I don't have to go get someone else on the same page. But also, if I don't have a corporate defendant, if I don't have multiple lawyers on their side, I don't want to be Goliath in the David versus Goliath battle. I don't want to be in there with my big trial team and I've got you know one defense lawyer with a thin file on a client on that other side because uh, I made that mistake before. and. You know, the perception means a lot. Uh, that being said, especially on a case that's going to last longer, you have multiple witnesses, you have a lot of briefing, having someone else that can, one, help share the load, where you don't have to do every single witness yourself, you don't have to prepare for everything yourself. But two, have that second set of eyes, because, you know, you need to, the trial's about the jury, and someone needs to be seeing how is the jury reacting to this? Well, you know, are we connecting? Are people getting things? And it's really hard when you're asking the questions and thinking of your next questions and making notes for how you're going to cross-examine something, someone when they say something indirect, to be checking in with the jury. So I think if you have the right person uh, with you, uh, it can help a whole lot. So I guess the answer is I would not say it's always better to have the pair. Uh, I think the main reason we have pairs at our firm is because we want to give people experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everybody who works here seems to want to try cases, and so we try to get... You know, if I'm going to try a case, I try to bring someone with me so I can start giving her or him some guidance and experience. And, you know, the, the case I had this week, I mean, it was an arbitration, so it was a little less stressful, no jury. Uh, but we have a, a mid, I wouldn't say 
super inexperienced lawyer, maybe five, six year lawyer at the firm, but not a lot of trials. And I let her come in with me and do three of the witnesses, a, an expert, a regular direct, and a cross, uh, just so she can get some flavor of that. And she did a fantastic job, I'm glad to say. Uh, so I guess that's another reason we do it is, is to try to get younger lawyers trial experience. Uh, and then I'm you know hoping at some point I don't have to try. As much as I love trying cases, I don't have to try every case at our firm because you know I just don't have the energy to try. You know, I was younger, I did 10 or 12 cases a year. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do you know three or four cases a year. Um, why, why do you love to try cases? And it's probably changed at different points in my career. I think one is because I wanted the glory and I wanted uh, the affirmation of winning. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think that's as much it for me anymore. Uh, I just love the, it's fun. <laughs> I don't know, uh, the intellectual challenge, uh, especially when you have like, an expert on their side and you know they're being disingenuous and, and finding the literature, finding the prior testimony and, and exposing their deception is fun. Uh, Storytelling is fun. I mean, that's what we do as people. You know, just being able to connect with someone on human levels is an enjoyable thing to do. Uh, so it's fun. I mean, that's why I went to law school. Is I didn't realize all the other stuff you did. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess, you know, it used to be more about ego. Now it's more about fun. In fact, I don't think about, this sounds weird, but I don't think about winning or losing when I'm a draw anymore. Like, I work really hard. I really want to win. But if I'm worried so much about, you know, Am I going to win? What's going to happen? How much are we going to get? Then, you know, it's like you're playing stiff if you're in sports. You have to just get in the flow. And now I just kind of worry about who, who am I talking to? Am I connecting with this juror? Are we telling our story? And then just learning to trust the jurors. Instead of being worried about, I've got to, I've got to convince them. I've got to make them do what I want. I'm just, I've learned to just let go. It's kind of a, uh, Lisa Min and Winston Welk have helped me with this kind of a Zen mindset of just, I'm going to be in the moment. I want to enjoy myself. I want to make a human connection. And then I have no power. These 12 people have the power, so I'm just going to trust them to do the right thing. And we've done a lot better since I've done that. Um, how do you prepare to cross-examine witnesses at trial? Because that's a unique skill, and that's that one is particularly hard to prepare for because you don't know what they're going to say or how they're going to react. Um, what are some techniques that you use to prepare for that? Well, what I really try to do is think of what is the story I want to tell with this witness and how I'm going to tell that story. And then I try to limit, when I can, the cross to that. And that takes discipline because sometimes there's something like, oh, I can burn somebody with this, I can tear somebody up with that. But, you know, is a jury watching you, even if they're entertained by it, tearing somebody up, is that going to actually persuade them to ruin your favor? Uh, and, and you have a big risk of turning them off. Uh, so what I really look at is I think of what what do I want to, what is the story I want to tell how does this advance the the case and you know hopefully how does this make whoever I've cast as a villain and sometimes the villain is you know a high level person at the corporation who made the decisions that led to the harm sometimes the villain is this amorphous defense which is really the insurance company we can't say insurance and who hires these paid experts to tell lies and try to trick trick jurors out of out of uh, treating people fairly. Uh, and then a lot of work. I mean, it, and it depends on what kind of cross it is. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, uh, an expert, which is a lot of the crosses I do, I mean, it's hours and hours of learning the literature, you know, 
looking, actually reading. I mean, you know, their reports will cite all these authorities. Well, actually reading all the authorities and finding out that they often don't say what the defense lawyers say they say. They don't always support their positions. Uh, you know, going to the scene so you understand how it is and getting the photos and video you need to show your visually your, your picture during cross. If it's a medical expert having read every page and line of the medical records, so when they misrepresent something, you can very quickly turn to it and show that, no, that's not what it said. Um, so it's just a ton of work. But it's also the part of trial I like the most. I, I hate direct of my client because you, you have no control and then you know the other side gets to go, you know, you've got some unsophisticated person versus a lawyer on the other side. Whereas, you know, Cross, and especially for me, Cross was someone who's good. Uh, Cross with a, with a professional expert, Cross with a corporate person, whereas, you know, because there's a real danger of looking like you're just putting words in someone's mouth. You're, but when someone's putting up a fight, mm -hmm. I love that. so fun. So I don't know if I fully answered your question. You uh, did. No, you did. You know, one of the one of the things I was going to ask you is, uh, um, I'm trying to think of a case where we have an example of telling a story on a cross. Can you think of a case that we've we've done that? Well, I mean, you can take like a, a truck driver and you know go through the story of, you know, you, you drove on this day, you you went to bed at this time. Oh, you didn't. You went to bed earlier. Well, let's go through it. Look, no, you filled up with gas here. Your phone, you made a phone call here, so no, you really weren't asleep till here, and you don't care what they say or not. I mean, they can deny it all you want. You're making your point, you're proving your point, and then you got up this part, you didn't have enough sleep, did you? Or you don't even have to say that because you're, you're showing the story leading up to the wreck, and, and you were sleepy, and you're driving down the road, and you don't even see a car in front of you and smash, and you've made the story that someone didn't have enough sleep. I mean, that's not a, you know, a great example, but that's the kind of things we do to kind of tell the story. And, uh, this, the trial lawyers call it it's called the storybook cross. It's like, you know, once upon a time there was, a, you know, and they just go page by page in the story, and everyone gets one fact, one question. Um, but I think that's one way to do things. And, and when you do that, you often don't care what the answer is. You're just sitting there, you're looking at the jury for your key points, and you're really telling your story. Um, weirdly, sometimes when I'm writing out a cross or even in, for a deposition, even preparing for a deposition to make sure that I'm getting my story across, I actually start my outline with once upon a time to get myself in the mindset That's of awesome. telling a story. Um, but it really does help. You have to get in that mindset of you're not asking them questions for the sake of asking them questions. No. Um, you have to have a really specific goal and not get off track because um, jurors don't listen for very long. Well, that's what I told them, you know, with arbitration we did this week, There, it's weird, there's no openings and no closings. We did a pre-hearing memo and we do post-hearing briefs. And so I told Natalie, the lawyer that tried the case with us at the firm, I'm like, okay, Natalie, I don't have a closing, but I have a cross. And they ended with their expert. So my closing was my cross or their expert. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so I made my points to the arbitrator with that and told the story of what the defendant did wrong through their expert, who didn't agree with any of it. But I still got to tell the story. I got to show the pictures. And, uh, you know, we'll find out in a couple months when the arbitrator rules whether it was effective or not. But it, uh, it was fun. Um, one of the other parts of trial that are, it's really hard to prepare for um, is the rebuttal cross. I mean, the rebuttal closing. What, how do you prepare for that? Well, actually, I used to think it was hard to prepare for because I used to think what you're supposed to do is go and rebut what they just said. Uh, and I don't do that anymore. David Ball is the one that I read from him and talked to him and decided that was a bad idea because I don't want to make it all about what the uh, defense just talked about because then we're, now we're playing back in their field or what Rodney Jew calls the purple box, you know, the, the place where 
the defense wins. And, and I don't want to talk about the purple box. I want to talk about what I want to talk about. And so I don't uh, – if there's something I think I, one or two points I need to address, I'll address. But I now prepare almost all my rebuttal well in advance. Uh, and a lot of it is really going in there and empowering the jury. It's the last time you can talk to them. And so I you know, I stole this from David Ball, but I just think of, you know, if what are the things someone might argue on the other side that our jurors have to overcome? And I just think about arguing. So if someone says X, you can say Y. So, you know, someone says, well, I'm not sure. You remind them that, hey, it's, it doesn't, you don't have to be sure. It's more likely than not, you know, for example. Um, I think someone calls it arming your jurors exactly. with the facts that support you to counter the arguments that the defense exactly. has. Um, because you're not going to convince them of that. You know, they've heard the evidence, and I think if you go there and you just go there and argue, they're ready to shut down, they're tired, they're ready to make their decision. But remember, it's about them, it's not about you. And so if you go there to help them, saying, you know, the ones that want to help you, you tell them, hey, if someone makes some arguments, I'd like to give you some suggestions on what to say back. You know, you're being useful to them. And I found that they perk up more. Yeah. One of the other ways that I've, um, I was very, very nervous when I first started trying cases, and I think I told you that that's not why I became a lawyer, was to try cases, and now I like it, and now I, we do it all the time, but, but when I first started, I was really, really nervous, and one of the things that really helped me um, in overcoming the nerves is doing focus groups, because you talk to 12, 24 people that you don't know that have all kinds of opinions, and getting to know their opinions without any agenda um, and having that patience, that really helps teach patience, I think, uh, with the focus group. But I don't know how you feel about that. I agree with that, and I think I I got better from doing more focus groups than I did from doing more trials, because even though I, you know, when I was had tried, let's say, 75, 85 cases, you know, sometime in the, near the middle of my career, you know, I tried a lot of cases, but I was still being lawyer man a lot during those cases, and I was doing a lot of the same things over, whereas in a focus group, you really learn to just talk to people and be yourself and be more natural, which is a much better way to try a real case. Uh, so I think it's really one of the best ways. I mean, you want to learn to talk to people? Practice talking to people. I mean, you want to learn to run faster, you need to run. If you want to practice talking to human beings, then you need to practice talking to human beings. Mm-hmm. I remember the first one of the first focus groups I did, I was using lawyer words, and one of the words that I was using was contributory negligence, and it was on one of my forms that I was going to have them fill out. And so I was kind of explaining it to them. Here's the question I want you to answer. And one of the jurors leaned across the table and looked at me and said, you keep saying these words like we know what you're talking about, and none of us do. And all of the jurors start nodding along. And I realized, God, people can't understand me. And that's a really (laughs) big problem. It is. Because when you first got out of law school, you know how to speak like a lawyer, not like a person. And it's hard to get rid of that. It is. And I found that I talk too fast. And I'm naturally a fast talker. My dad sold used cars. What do you expect from me? Uh, but I'm naturally a fast talker. And then when I get a little nervous, I'm an even faster talker. And uh, practicing with focus groups has really helped me to slow down. And, uh, and you've noticed that. My mm-hmm. diction is totally different now. Because now, instead of being worried about how important it is to say what I have to say, I'm focused on, is someone hearing and understanding what I have to say? And it's about them and not about me. And it's really helped me slow down and, mm-hmm. and be more expressive. <clears throat> I think also being comfortable making a mistake in front of the jury um, was really hard for me. And and, a fo- and focus groups really helped me with that because you realize that people will come to save you and they'll try to help you along the way. So if you stumble or if you say a word wrong, if you have a connection with the jury, they're going to help you. They're going to 
you might have a juror just kind of give you the you messed up but it's okay kind of look yeah um, and I, they don't they don't expect you to be perfect they don't and um and, and i think they distrust you when you are it's too polished it's too you know not to say you don't want to prepare a lot because you do but you don't have to say every word absolutely perfectly i mean i go back and read my transcripts like oh my gosh i sound like an <laughs> idiot but you know hey if it works it works it's just about being real um one of the other questions that we got was about trial technology um and someone said what kind of trial technology should i get should i get an elmo a big screen software um we use a lot of different kinds of technology for different kinds of cases um at our firm what are the some what are the some of the things that you've tried that didn't work Forgetting to take the lens cap off my projector and then not realizing what it was and getting increasingly frustrated was a one thing that did not work. Uh, and finally giving up on it. And then after the hearing, when I went back to go figure out what was wrong with it, realizing I had left the cap on the whole time and just felt like the biggest idiot. Uh, having a computer crash after I'd spent hours doing a PowerPoint and then telling the jury well I worked hard on this PowerPoint and you're not going to see it so I guess we just have to talk about what happened and actually that was my first seven-figure verdict uh, so you know I guess the facts matter more than the pretty stuff uh, and so I think technology is great we use a lot of it but I think people sometimes fall in the trap of using technology for technology's sake oh we have to use this stuff we have to look good uh, and you can be too slick if you're not careful or it looks really good, but are you really proving the point? I mean, you and I had a case, and we spent a lot of money, I think like $30,000 in doing this animation that we thought just proved our point in this hard liability case. We looked at it, we thought this solidly shows that this truck driver is at fault. And we showed that to a focus group, and <laughs> what did they think? <laughs> Uh, they didn't get it at all. No, they, I mean, they they thought that our exhibit that we spent all this money on showed the exact opposite of what we were trying to prove. They thought we were suing the driver of the car that our girl was in and not the truck driver. Or maybe the truck driver was suing the car of, <laughs> yeah. of our client. Yeah, so you have to remember the purpose of the uh, technology is to tell your story better and more easily. Um I know one of the questions is, should someone get an Elmo? Should they get a large screen? Should they get a projector? I do have some opinions on that. Okay. Uh, one, if the courtroom allows and if your budget allows. And, you know, back when I was starting, I had to get a projector because that's what I could afford. And uh, then you need to get people to help you carry stuff in and out. But a large screen, high-definition television where it's an actual screen is much better than a projector because you lose resolution with a projector Lighting in the courtroom is an issue with a projector, and I noted it, and I forgot exactly what it was, but there was a case I was trying in Laredo, Texas, and we were showing an MRI to the jury, and there's something that the doctor could see clear as day in the films. I could see clear as day on the films. The projector resolution did not show it, and then I noticed that in this particular courtroom, the jurors had little bitty LCD screens, and it was clear as day on their screens. And that's when I realized this projector, if they didn't have that screen, would not have shown the jury a really, really important, you know, thing on this disc. And I think it was like a bright white spot that showed there was an annular tear on this herniation, which our doctor was saying was evidence that this was traumatic uh, and also justification for procedure that was done. And, you know, we were saying it was there. The defense expert said it wasn't. Uh, being able to show it to him was really important. 
Um, and you know the projector uh, almost cost us that uh, that trial because they just did not have a good enough resolution to show it. So the other thing with a projector is then people you have to worry about people standing in front of it, and you know then it's hard to sit there and point at it. I mean, you can use a laser pointer, but I would prefer to use a hand or a stick or something else and get more physical with it. So I like the screen better. I don't like Elmo's. A lot of people do, and they're nice to have because if you have a piece of paper, you can stick it on there, you can write on it. But the problem with paper is then you're fumbling through your papers, you're going back and forth. I mean, our last arbitration trial this week, I had all my exhibits PDF'd. And when I wanted to open an exhibit, I just had them numbered, one, two, three, four, in the description of what they were. I just opened that PDF and went to the page, and it was up on my screen. Uh, and it's a lot faster than fumbling through through papers. Uh, so I personally, I know people use Trial Director and Sanction and that stuff, but I just PDF them and then have my photos as photos, uh, and it works for me. So that's part of it. Uh, you got to learn how to use it. You have to be comfortable with the computer. I mean, some people want someone else running it for them. I go nuts when I have to try to convince, I communicate to someone else, no, that's not what I wanted, I want this. So I personally like them having it loaded up on my laptop and I'm doing it myself and that way I get what I want when I want. But not everyone's comfortable with that. I remember um, for a trial we had to do depot cuts and the judge specifically said this portion of the depot cannot be played to the jury. Okay, great, we cut the depot, we had it, and because the screen was on the other side of the room, um, an assistant had to play the deposition and she selected the wrong version. She selected the original without the cut. Oh my gosh. And so I saw it coming and they asked a question and the defense counsel stands up and then I stand up freaking out and start yelling, stop it, stop it. But I totally <laughs> lost the jury. I mean, they thought I was just a crazy bee. <laughs> and hiding things from And too. hiding things. And I think I really lost the jury because of that because... I was trying to preserve the record, and I mean, the judge said that cannot come in, and yeah, but it's because I wasn't running it, and I, they selected the wrong video. Yeah, it happens. Uh, and look, that's the other thing with trial technology is if you use trial technology sooner or later, it's not going to work. And I don't know how many times I've gone to a CLE and they have someone as their presenter on trial technology, and three out of four times it doesn't work for them. It's crazy, uh, and so. You know, you have to be prepared for it not to work. And that's why, you know, I'm a control freak. I like to just have it on my computer and I can know now. You know, I think that's when we're using uh, Sanction or something else to do the video cuts. And, yeah. Uh, and I do like having that program where you do video cuts on the fly. And, you know, we use the technology, but I also don't like to be totally beholden to it. And the other thing I don't like with Sanction is that it cuts where the timestamp is and sometimes you get some big long pauses you get words a little bit cut off so I like to do the cut with sanction then put it into Premiere and kind of clean up the video edits mm -hmm. uh, take out the long pauses uh, we need to go a little add a little extra to get the little part of a word that sanction was going to clip off we do that so it is one of the most awkward things during <laughs> a trial when you took a deposition and there's this long pause that you didn't realize was there and everybody's just looking around like, is that it? Yeah. <laughs> you're just waiting for the next thing, and you didn't realize that you, you pause so much in depositions until you have to watch it in a trial. Yeah, and Sanction is so easy to edit all that stuff out. Mm -hmm. uh, not Sanction, I'm sorry, Premiere. Mm -hmm. uh, Adobe Premiere Pro is just, it's not very expensive. You can run it off your laptop. It's very intuitive. Uh, and so, I mean, if I can use it, I, mean, I think anyone can use it. Um, one of the things that... I think we've been trying to do um, over the last few years is to simplify our trial exhibits. Um, 
less stuff on them, if we're going to have a PowerPoint, have blank slides. It, why, why are we, I mean, what is, what do you think the purpose of that is? Well, I, I started putting blank slides in the PowerPoint because I want someone to read what's on the screen when I want them to read what's on the screen. If not, I want them looking at me, and so I'll put a blank slide up so that there's nothing else to look at. Um, now, we've since moved more recently into trying to do more actual physical boards uh, that could stay up, and uh, we worked with Rodney Jew, and he's really, uh, really big on that. But even then, you choose when to put them up, and then you can choose when to turn them around or put them down. I mean, what, you're the director of this movie. You need to choose where the audience's attention is. Uh, I think PowerPoint, most of it is horrible. I mean, most of it is not effective at all. You get the jurors reading instead of listening to you. If you're going to have something for them to read, you need to put it up, let them read it, and then talk. Or read it together. But just to put it up in the background, what you're talking about, what you're talking, and then where are they paying attention? Are they listening to you? Are they reading? I mean, there is no such thing as divided attention. You're paying attention to one thing at a time. Um, have you faced any problems with juries? Uh, you talking about the David and Goliath thing earlier. When you come in with all this technology and defense counsel comes in with their skinny manila folder and a legal pad, um, you know, has that been an issue for you? Yes. Uh, and, it, and it's one of the reasons that I try to tailor the technology to the, to the case. And I, I think now, you know, TVs, video cuts, PowerPoint is enough where that's not going to really, and especially printed boards, I think, don't seem high-tech. But I think when you get into the animations and some of the more high-tech stuff, uh, and a big trial team. I mean, what I hate most is when I go in there in a trucking case and there is a five foot two woman on the other side. Uh, the worst is when she had to repeatedly be excused because of morning sickness because she was very, very visibly pregnant. And we had to like take breaks periodically for her to go throw up in the bathroom during trial. Uh, <laughs> and here I am sitting there with my team and my stuff. and. Uh, I definitely look. We got a verdict, but I think I could have got a bigger verdict if it if I hadn't looked like Goliath. Uh, um, and you said that she was five two. Some of the people listening don't know how tall you yeah, are. Yeah, I'm six four. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, there was a you know, foot two inch difference between us, and uh, she wouldn't wear heels either. She, I mean, she was definitely wouldn't bring in her whole file. Wouldn't you know? Didn't bring in boxes and boxes. I mean, she purposely played it up, and mm-hmm. she was trying to make it look like it was a mom and pop truck driver. They must not have had much or if any insurance because she's all they have and you know uh, and when I tried a little car wreck cases we had that all the time that you know the there's one she did all state insurance defense cases but she would you know she'd go in there she'd dress very plain and then every day at lunch she'd have a little thin file and every day at lunch she would sit on a bench the jurors had to walk by eating a sack lunch and reading the bible huh. making sure that everybody saw that she wasn't going out to eat and she was reading her bible at lunch and I will say I think that image in front of the jury does mean a lot Um, and I put thought into what I wear and how I'm acting in the hallway and not that I would act crazy but um, but I but I think that they do pay attention to that stuff what do you think absolutely Uh, and so for example I unless a judge makes me I don't wear a dark suit because that is a power suit that's corporate America that's not you know I want something that's off code and so you know I wear khakis and usually an earth tone, brown, beige type jacket. Uh, I usually don't wear my red power ties to court. Uh, make sure I get a haircut because looking shaggy or you know, with my eyebrows are growing crazy or some of that. Uh, it's distracting. I mean, it doesn't mean you'll lose a case, but I think it's distracting. Uh, and 
you know, how you treat people. I mean, if you're there in front of the jury and you're being as nice as can be and polite and then you're snapping at your staff or your other people and they see you in the hallways cussing at people and stuff, it, it's like, okay, this person's fake. So I think you have to always remember, you know, or if you're talking about safety and safety and safety and then you're barreling out of the parking lot on your cell phone, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that, that tells them that you don't really mean it. Uh, and so, you know, people spot hypocrisy and, and hate it. So I think, you know, the, the image and how you act you know, is very, very important in the courtroom. And same for our clients. I mean, we've had to take clients to Target night before trial because we ask them to come dressed how they're going to dress in a courtroom. And, uh, you know, poor people, they just don't know any better. And, and they don't have that experience or they just don't have the wardrobe or the money. And uh, so, you know, we often have to, you know, costume our, our clients too. You know, I think it is important to make sure the clients are dressed presentably, but it's important that they be themselves too. So if they don't wear a tie, I don't make them wear a tie to court because they're going to be playing with a tie the entire time we're there. Or we had a case that we tried last year where it was an older gentleman um, from South Texas and all he owned were nice jeans and he had a button up, but he had nice jeans. That's what he wore. And and I wouldn't have a problem with nice yeah. jeans. I, I think the, you know, some of the rigs I've seen people want to wear, I don't know how else to put it. I mean, you know, we had a client show up in sweatpants, uh, a black dress shirt that was untucked, a, a weird purple tie thing, and ten like hiking shoes. Uh, you know, it was yeah. not the image we needed. Right. Uh, and some people just, you know, like I had a client that she had, she worked as a housekeeper, and she had T-shirts, jeans, and flip-flops, and then she had the dresses she'd wear to go out to the cantinas that were like zebra-striped and short and low-cut, and, mm-hmm. you know, neither one was the right look. So for her, you know, we went and just Target, and it was nothing crazy, but you know, got the right something that was comfortable for her. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we definitely wouldn't have put her in a business suit because she would have felt awkward. But you know, right? Pair of khakis, a nice but decent blouse, nothing too fancy, and mm-hmm. you know, it's a good thirty, forty dollar investment. Yeah. But I definitely would not put a client in a tie unless a judge made me put a client in a tie. Right. Um. Or even like the total buttoned up collared shirt. I had a client wear one to a deposition the other day and he played with it the whole time. And on a break, I said, you can unbutton that top button. You don't have to have it. He goes, oh, okay. And unbuttoned it finally. But it's sort yeah. of, that's what he thought he should be wearing. But it was so uncomfortable for him that it was making his testimony uncomfortable. And it was making him just agitated. And that's not good either. I mean, you don't want your client to appear agitated. No. Um, and if they're fiddling with something, it looks like they're not being truthful. Even just because they're uncomfortable, not because... I think the biggest thing we've learned is just, just like we have to rehearse, we have to bring the clients in, in and say, please wear what you're planning to wear to trial, and then we can advise them appropriately. Uh, the other thing I think is important, kind of on a related thing, is getting clients comfortable is, if you can, you know, sometimes logistics without a town trials prevent this, but if you can find a time when the courtroom's open but empty, and you can bring your clients in there and get a feel for the courtroom, and especially if you have time to sit on the witness stand with no one else there, have a few of your staff members sit in the jury box and practice, you know, asking them questions and talking to the jury and getting them more comfortable with being in that environment, I think it's really helpful. How much do you practice with clients before going to trial? Not enough. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't rehearse the entire testimony. Uh, and I'm, I'm really torn on this because... People do need to be prepared, but then I'm worried that they're going to try to memorize the answers and they're going to be scripted and they're not going to be real and authentic. And so, you know, the biggest thing is telling them, like, 
convincing them, and it's hard to do, is stop worrying about the fact of your answer. Just listen to the question, tell the truth, trust me that if they twist things out of proportion, I'll come back and save you. Uh, but you know, putting the client on is the scariest thing, and I actually think I should probably ask you because you're a lot better at it than I am. I'm, <laughs> that's not my strength. Uh, I, I'm really good about intensely working on myself. I'm not so good about patiently working with a client. You're a lot better at it than I am. So what do you think the answer is? It takes a lot of patience to work with clients, and everybody has different needs. So there's those clients that, um, that they're just not going to be comfortable unless you practice question and answer style preparation. Um, I tend to not do that. I don't ask them questions. I don't have them give me answers. Um, I have them tell me stories because that's what we're going to have them do on the stand. Um, even for deposition preparation, that's what I do. Tell, tell me the story of how the wreck happened or tell me the story of your medical treatment. What did you do? What did you have to do? Um, and it prepares them without them memorizing the question and answer because there's no way in trial that question is going to come out the exact same way you practiced it and they're going to get thrown off and not know the answer that I'll, they knew before. Oh, they're trying to remember the answer, and then they'd look disingenuous. Yeah. And I agree with that. I do think there is some value, whether it's in the courtroom, though, or somewhere else, to get them to practice telling their story to someone other than you, mm-hmm. uh, with you asking and then them looking at, learning to look at people and talk to them, because it's not natural. I mean, we have to do, we do all this work on ourselves, and then we take the biggest exhibit A, our client, and we just, like, kind of throw them in there. Uh, and I do think it is important when we can to give them a chance to practice speaking to other people. And because people, I mean, I forget this. I mean, people say public speaking is one of the biggest fears that people have. And because for me, I don't have any fear at all of public speaking. I, you know, I'm so glad to have anyone listen to me. But <laughs> the, uh, you know, we forget how scared and nervous people are. So, you know, getting them a little practice, uh, I think does help. I also do think it's important to not just practice in front of other people, but practice answering the questions to the person that they're going to actually answer questions to during trial so that you can form a relationship and sort of a... Yeah, yeah, you're giving away our secrets now. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, practice, you know, it's, the, the trial's about the jury. It's not about us. It's not about the client. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, having them practice making eye contact with a juror and, and communicating and trying to make some connection with that juror if you have a client that will that will spend the time and uh, you dedicate the time, I think it's very worthwhile. And I think reassuring your client that the jury does want to hear what they have to say. They're interested yeah. and they care. Because um, I think a, a lot of people, part of the fear of public speaking is no one's going to care. They're all going to think I'm weird. They're going to they're gonna think I'm lying sometimes. You know, I mean, it, there's all kinds of fears that are associated with it. But reassuring them, hey, this jury is excited to be here most of them are they're interested in hearing what you have to say most of them really are um and then once they see the jury listening intently to them they start to warm up yeah the other thing to remember is that you know human beings don't make decisions based on logic or facts human beings make an emotional decision and then come up with a justification for the decision they just made and one of the ways we judge people is will you look me in the eye when you're telling me that do you look like you're shifty eyed do you look nervous you won't look at me so when clients learn to actually just look, make eye contact and talk to somebody, it just comes across as so much more credible. What I've done with really nervous clients, too, on the stand is um, if, if you start asking questions and they're just cold, um, to ask them if they're nervous. Just say, hey, are you nervous? And then they'll kind of laugh. And then once they get that laugh out, it's sort of like, okay, yeah. now I can breathe. Like, I can actually breathe now. And now the jury knows that I'm so nervous, you know. Yeah, and they don't have to pretend anymore. Mm-hmm. And 
of course you're nervous. No one thinks you're not nervous up there. Yeah. They'd all be nervous going up there. And, and then I think the other thing that we found that helped is uh, when clients – Remember we had the the woman who couldn't even remember all her children's names. She yes. was so nervous. I mean, I I thought I was throwing her. Throwing her uh, was it you or me re- re- examining her? I don't even remember. It was you. Yeah, I thought I was just throwing her these like softballs just to get started. Like, what's your name? Who are your children? How old are they? And she couldn't remember her kids' names. I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. But then we got we had good photos in the case of the things that they had done before because it was the the injured man's wife, and we wanted to show what life was like before. And once we got the first photo. And then she's like, now she's in the living room. She's telling people about the family vacation. She's telling people about this trip they took, uh, showing off her house in her yard and how nice it looked before. And she just opened up because she had the picture, and it just changed everything. Um, it really did help her, too, turn to the jury and talk. So she um, she was showing them the photo. I mean, the, not all the jurors could see it, but... Um, but they were paying attention to her because she was really, really engaging. She's like, oh, and this is my um, my granddaughter, and these are our goats, and this is our house. And, um, I mean, it really did warm her up. And then you got to the, the questions that you were really there to ask. And then she got surreal, and, and, and she married this guy, but we don't really like him. You know, she just started <laughs> she getting so comfortable that it made it so much more real. Mm-hmm. That, that's actually an interesting uh, point about giving the witness a photograph and having them show the jury the photograph. Um, how do you do that? Because most of the time it's like a little, you know, piece of paper sized photograph and the jury can't see it. In that case, we didn't show it on a big screen at the same time because we wanted them to be engaged with a witness. Um, what do you what do you think about that in hindsight? In hindsight, I don't know if it would have been better to have put it on a big screen or not. Uh, and then have the witness get off the stand and point at things. It may have been, you know, I think in that particular case, the photos weren't that compelling. I mean, it was like husband and wife on a ski lift in summer going up, you know, a mountain, uh, a family picture by the Grand Canyon. The pictures themselves weren't that moving. They didn't even show him doing a whole lot. He was sitting or standing. It's the stories they elicited. So I think in that case, the re- what we really wanted to do was to have the jury and the wife engage each other and for her to tell human stories that were believable because when you heard these stories, the guy clearly was doing very well physically before this wreck. So I think that uh, in that case, I don't think it hurt us that we didn't put them up on the big screen. If I had to do it over again, I probably would uh, just because pe- visual communication is so important. Uh, I think... Um if you do use technology in the courtroom, you have to physically interact with it. It can't be something that's behind you or just sort of auxiliary, right? Yeah, because then the, then the attention is on the screen and on the witness. Mm-hmm. And we do want to keep, we, we were trying to create a human connection between the, the, the witness and the jurors. And if they were all looking somewhere else at a screen that's in a different part of the courtroom, I don't think that would have worked. I think it would only work if we could have gotten her off the stand and in front of it, but even then, I think she would have had trouble like pointing back and making contact. So, I think maybe we did do it right when we used the photos that none of them could see. <laughs> I think so too. In that situation, I think we did. But I think there are situations, like with an expert witness, um, who the jurors don't trust them already. But to get him interacting, him or her interacting with the exhibit and showing, not just telling, I think is important. Absolutely, and you know, turning to experts. I mean, I, you know, I, I think jurors are very suspicious of anyone who's getting paid to testify and and they should be 
I mean, because you for enough money you can get anybody to say anything. Uh, there are still not anybody. You can get somebody to say anything. I should say. <laughs> I mean, there are still people that would willingly go testify that asbestos and, and cigarettes don't cause cancer, uh, and and be very happy getting rich saying that. So what I think is really important with an expert is to show that. I don't want to use my expert as a conduit to bring in reliable literature, studies, publications that are not written for purpose of litigations to show, to back up the expert's opinions. And that basically my expert's just showing people this is the science or this is the industry standard or whatever it is from three or four sources at clear as day. And then, yeah, we win because we're right. And it's not based on, well, based on my experience in the industry and uh, my qualifications, this is what the answer is. No one cares about that. No one's going to believe that. And, and so in those cases, I think showing the publication, uh, and what we do is, you know, we, we get the, we call them anchor boards. We learned this from Rodney Jew. I got he, he wants me to give him credit. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, we show the, the, the excerpt from the publication, uh, what it says, what it means. And that way we have the, when the experts go in there, I don't mind him sharing the spotlight and even the jurors paying more attention to the exhibit than him, because the to me the source, the basis for his opinion is more important than the actual guy that's being paid to talk. Uh, so at the end of the day, after a trial, um, you have to ask for money, right? I mean, that's that's the whole. Yeah. Unless you're in Pennsylvania, where they don't let you. Yeah, everywhere else, you gotta <laughs> you, you better ask for the money, or you're not going to get it. So, do you actually ask for an amount of money? Um, in your closing? Yes. Why? Because the, the conversation has to start somewhere. And, you know, what may be without me anchoring it, I mean, a juror may really want to help me, but if I just let them on their own, they may think that $100,000, a million dollars is a lot of money. Uh, you know, I think if you anchor them with a huge amount of money, I think what typically happens is you've got two or three jurors in there that want to do what you want them to do. You have two or three jurors in there that don't want to do anything you want them to do, and you have some in the middle, and you know, you've got to start high so that your jurors have somewhere to start from when they start, unfortunately, having to negotiate down. Now, sometimes you click so much you get what you ask for, uh, but I think it's important to ask for a whole, whole bunch because if you don't, you know, you're not going to get much. And, and they're not offended by you asking for a bunch. They, I thought they would be. I always thought, oh, well, I'll be more reasonable. No, you just anchor them to a lower starting point, and they still go down from there. Uh, you need to, if you want to get big money, you got to ask for huge money. Um, one of the questions uh, from the audience is how how do you, one, figure out how much to ask for, um, but then two, how do you actually do it? Yeah, well, <laughs> and, that, and that took some real work because, I mean, there's just and my client deserves a million dollars. My client deserves a million dollars. It's Anything less than that would be an insult. I mean, there's a very big, no, I wouldn't say anything less than that would be an insult. But <laughs> I'm saying is you have to believe it. And mm -hmm. so part of it is practice. I mean, just get in the mirror and, and practice saying it, and then do focus groups. And, and if you can't say it with a straight face, if you can't say and you notice if your inflection starts falling off, if you stumble on it, it's because you don't really believe your client deserves that amount of money. And the other part of it is you have to believe in your client and believe in your case enough that either your client deserves to get that amount of money or conversely the defendant deserves to pay that amount of money which frankly is a lot more motivation for the defendant uh, for the jurors you often can't say that because it's compensatory but you know their emotion is they, they want to award money because not because they want to help your client but because they want to protect themselves because they want to punish someone that deserves to be punished because jurors don't view pain and suffering as compensatory they view that as 
you know, if it's a pure accident, they don't like giving it. They, 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 they do that for someone they did wrong that needs to learn a lesson. They do that to protect themselves. But I think it's just part of it is just really believing your case and knowing your client well enough to know they deserve it. Uh, and then the other part of it is just practice so you can learn to say it with a straight face and, and not being guilty about it and, you know, getting over whatever your own issues with money that, you know, not feeling guilty about making money, which I did for a long time, uh, and not feel guilty about asking for money, which some people are uncomfortable with. And, and if you can't do it, you know, find someone that can to help you out and either as a consultant or bring someone else to try it with you because if you can't ask for the money in a straight face, you're not going to get it. Your client is not well served. But uh, don't be reasonable. Ask for a whole bunch. Um, some attorneys, because money is such an uncomfortable thing for people to talk about in society just generally, um, you know, I've seen some closing arguments where they they say, oh, this is the most uncomfortable part when I have to ask for money um, versus people that say, you know what, this is the amount of money that my client deserves and that's what it is. Yep. Uh, and I think the second way is a much, much better way. I mean, if, if you're saying this is so uncomfortable, I don't like doing this, well, then you probably you don't really believe it because if you really passionately believe that it is a miscarriage of justice for your client to get anything less than $5 million, then why does it bother you to ask for that? Uh, I don't think it helps. I mean, I don't think it's a good advocacy. I think it's like telling a jury that, well, I'm going to give an opening statement. An opening statement is a roadmap, and everything I say is an evidence. It's like, that doesn't help. That's verbal diarrhea. That's just stuff coming in your mouth because you're trying to think of what to say or because you want to be comfortable and stay on a script rather than telling a story. Uh, and it's the same thing for, for asking for money. If you want to ask for money, just ask for the money. Don't go apologize about asking for it. Don't, don't go say you feel bad about it because you shouldn't. If you feel bad about it, then you shouldn't be trying the case because if you don't passionately believe it, then how are you going to convince anyone else to do it? Would you start the conversation about money in Vordier or the opening or leave the actual numbers to the closing? Uh, I've done it different ways. Uh, I, I've heard people talk about Vordier. I've heard people Vordier on, you know, could you consider giving $90 million? And, you know, if you had a, a judge that would cause somebody off because they wouldn't consider that amount of money, you know, Texas, most judges won't do that anymore. Maybe just because you get people off for cause, uh, if that's the kind of order you're doing. I typically don't talk about uh, dollar amounts in Vordire. I typically do mention an amount at the end of opening, but not always, but I typically do. Uh, because David Balson has booked to do it. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I do think there is a, a danger of coming out with this huge amount of money at the end of the trial. And for the first time, they've never heard it before. I think you know, trying to set that anchor early, and maybe in Vordire, because I know that uh, I was trying a case against one particular lawyer from McAllen, Texas, and I did not mention a dollar amount, and he knew I was going to ask for a million dollars in this case. And he said, you know, now, this kind of case, they're going to ask for a lot of money. I mean, they might even ask for like seventy-five, maybe even a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> and then, so then I had to go back and you know, first start, you know, start my opening by saying, "No, nah, he knows that's not true. He knows I'm asking for a million dollars." But it, you know, it just it it, it it kind of set me up for that <laughs> trick. But also, I had to go address it really earlier. They would say, "Hey, wait a minute. He was saying he wanted a hundred. Now he wants a million. What's going on?" Uh, I have heard you in Vordire not have not talk about specific amounts of money. But talk about what if this was one of those kind of cases where people would talk about it on the news because it was a really big verdict. How would you feel about being on that jury? 
Yeah, but the point of that question is not to see how they would feel about awarding a lot of money. The point of that question is to make them feel like this is a very important case and that they're going to do something big and it's going to be on the news and mm-hmm. uh, and, and empowering them and trying to get them to be heroes. So that question is not really truly a get people off for cause. That is actually one of the get them setting up their heroic story structure in the trial. I also will say, though, that making them understand that it's important, an important case from the very beginning, even if you're not talking specifically about money, um, knowing that it's important makes them less likely to balk at big money I asks. agree. A, a jury is, if it's not an important case, then they've wasted their time. I mean, every case is important. Uh, even a small car wreck case makes a difference, on, I believe, on how safe we are on the roadways. And, you know, when, when jurors follow the law and give a, a verdict that finds negligent people negligent, finds non-negligent people non-negligent, and appropriately balances out the harms and losses with, with money, I think it causes drivers to drive more safely. And I think when jurors break the law, it endangers all of us because then there's no reason not to drive unsafely. Uh, so I, I do think that if they believe they're doing something important, they're more likely to do something heroic because it is hard in this society if you think about it from the jurist point of view to give a big verdict no one is going to criticize you if you give a tiny verdict if you give meds only if you pour a plane about and no one in society is going to criticize you if you give 50 million dollars or 100 million dollars there are going to be people talking about you there's going to be people writing letters to the editor people are going to be calling you an idiot uh, and you have to be heroic you have to be brave to say i don't care what people are going to say I heard the evidence, they didn't, this is wrong, and I want to stand up right here and right now and say stop, and this is the only way I can do it. Uh, and they're only going to do that if they think it's important, if they think it's a big deal. But you really do have a chance to make a difference. And there are not that many situations in our lives where you really feel like you have that ability and that power to make a real difference. Uh, and so it's fun, uh, but when you do it right, you make a human connection with other people and you trust them and return, they return that trust by giving a verdict that makes the world a better place. And that's a great thing. Well, I think that's a good way to wrap up. I think so too. <laughs> well, thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Uh, if you guys have any other questions you'd like us to answer or discuss, we're gonna start doing this more often. Um, give us a shout out you can either email us or uh, go to our facebook page thanks for tuning in and i look forward to having you next time on trial lawyer nation each year the law firm of cowan rodriguez peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host michael cowan if so you can reach michael by calling 210-941- 1301 or send an email to michael at We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. 
This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.